Bonjour, bonsoir, dear friends, and welcome to JCB Live Happy Hour. We will be traveling today throughout time with one of the most famous, exciting, and obviously a double brain. He has two doctorate degrees. I call him El Professore. He lives in the heart of the culture of America in Philadelphia, and he's the man behind scientific biomolecular laboratory for cuisine, fermented beverage, health at the University of Pennsylvania Museum in Philly, where he's also an adjunct professor of anthropology. Can you imagine? I had to look down to my notes because his resume is as wide and large as his first book. He's written many, many books, and one of them is probably one of the most fascinating, dear friends, that you will be able to have access to today, named Ancient Wines. He'll be talking about it, but before we do this, we're going to bring a historical wine who will help him to appear, Professor Pat McGovern with the famous Marty Old, who leads all our educational phenomenal Intrology program. Please, dear friends, welcome Marnie and Professor Pat. <laughs> That's quite an introduction, I must say. Uh, but well, I, Professor, introducing you with one of the most historical uh, image of France. Why didn't you the use image your of our king? I'm delighted. Yeah. Why didn't you use your sword like you do on the video? <laughs> that, that's a perfect well, strike. You, 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 you're exactly right. I should have, and I promise next time I ha I will. And I was intimidated. I was shaking, you know, when we have such personalities like you. Uh, sometimes I get my body to vibrate a little more than I'd like. Yeah, well. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. <laughs> so, Professor, great, you great are discussion. in your wonderful office in Philadelphia where culture all started in America and this is you mentioned this is where you and your wife uh, reside and where all those great ideas come that's right and uh, we're drinking the uh, Royale right this is your very special champagne absolutely well let's start special vineyard what do you think of it give us your your opinion professor I've had it open now for a while, so it's changed somewhat, but uh, I, it seems to have a nice yeasty, the, the yeasty aromas that come off of it are very special. I mean, I've been to Champagne, you know, I've been around to, you know, different uh, producers, and this one is really quite unusual. Um, I mean, it seems to have, you know, very special quality of uh, the yeast and, you know, of course, the fruit and so forth and the, the floral um, qualities to it as well. And I'm wondering... Uh, you know, you got your Pinot Noir from, uh, 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 I guess, from uh, Burgundy, yes. Uh, how did that all work? <laughs> well, I will let Marty answer <laughs> this one because this one is very special. This is actually made and produced, handcrafted in the heart of the Russian River. Right, Marnie? Absolutely. So, of course, the vine variety originates from Burgundy, as does all Pinot Noir grown worldwide. But this is grown and produced in the Russian River Valley. But you may notice, Dr. Pat, that it's true that most American interpretations of the champagne style, traditional method sparkling wines, 
tend to be a little, uh, in the wine world, we call them flabby in the sense that they're lacking a little bit in acidity and verve and in that magic that you get with French bubbles that is so hard to replicate. But what's amazing about this particular bottle, the Royale from Deloche, is that it does have that French magic all captured in the bottle, in part because this is from the very, very coldest growing region within the Russian River Valley Appalachian, a district known as the Green Valley. So the acidity is just brilliant. It gives you that whip crack yeah, of refreshment that just cleanses the senses and makes you hungrier and thirstier for the next sip and for the next bite of food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very much that way. Very, very nice. Uh, you know, the acidity and also the fine bubbles that it's producing. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Well, thank you, Professor. So, Professor, we're so honored to have you. And you are known as the Indiana Jones of ancient <laughs> wines. Not notoriously known. <laughs> yeah. So tell us, how did you get this wonderful title? Well, that is a story that goes back to Philadelphia again. And uh, there's a guy that used to write a, a column for the Philadelphia Daily News whose name was Joe Sixpack. Now, he was a beer writer, right? <laughs> but, you know, I, did, I do both wines and beers and, you know, fermented beverages of all kinds and, um, you know, even spirit, spirits to some degree. Uh, so it, uh, he just put it into one of his articles. He said, you know, he was quoting me and he said well now the indiana jones of fermented beverages uh you know from the university of pennsylvania he says and then he you know went ahead and that just caught on you know people he was famous enough i guess that the, the word got out and you know, everybody liked it and they just picked it up <laughs> so tell us maybe about the history of fermented beverage and how it has become you know fundamental to the human condition today right well you know even like when we talk about the pinot noir you know you sort of say well you know it comes from france well it has a lot earlier history to it i mean it goes back to Gouet blanc and all the different crosses that produce chardonnay and you know many other varieties that uh, were developed in france and italy and so on so it, it ultimately you trace it back to the near east right I mean, that's where the original the domestication would have occurred. And uh, you have the wild grape, you know, growing all along the Mediterranean, over to the Near East, and then out into Central Asia. Some of the oases in Central Asia also have it. Is that... Uh... And, uh, you know, the, the issue of fermented beverages, though, goes back even before the domestication of the grape, which occurs, and I'll talk about this more, uh, maybe around six or 7,000 B.C., because humans, you know, us, we come from Africa, right? And in Africa, they didn't have grapes except on the northern coast of the Mediterranean, but they did have things like figs, dates, palm nectar, different kinds of wild grains, sorghum and so on. Oh, you know, all kinds of different fruits that maybe we're not so familiar with either. And those have enough sugar in them that they could probably have fermented them into a fermented beverage. And, uh, you know, we don't have the evidence from the Paleolithic period. You know, we don't have containers. So for about a three or four million year period, we're without that evidence that we can, you know, actually do a chemical analysis. But, you know, assuming that humans, and this is not a, a far stretch, were similar then to what we are today, 
you know, we have uh, taste buds and olfactory <laughs> senses and so forth to pick up all the different aromas of fermentation. And we also have the mind-altering property of alcohol affecting our brains. I don't think it would have taken too long for humans to figure out how to make a fermented beverage. I mean, birds, you know, all different animals, you know, have fermented fruit that they eat. And in the process, they're getting a fermented beverage. And so it would just take the observation of humans, you know, seeing what animals are doing and maybe even getting drunk uh, at times. <laughs> and uh, figuring out, well, now if we take some of that fruit and we you know, punch it down and get some uh, juice out of it, and then we get some yeast you know, active, and that, of course, is on the outside of the fruit, uh, you get that beverage just like that. And uh, I think it would have been going on right from the beginning of humanity. Fascinating. Now, you touch on the history of wine. Do you want to give us... Because many of our friends with us tonight are fascinated, obviously, where wine come from and how it started. Maybe, Professor, if you would be so kind to give us a, a, a snapshot of the history of wine from Mesopotamia to today or maybe Asia. Uh, because from your perspective, it would be quite amazing. Well, the history of wine, of course, is now we have the humans in Africa and we have to come out of Africa. And, you know, which way do you come out of Africa? Well, you come across the Sinai Peninsula or, you know, into the uh, area uh, to the northeast and, and then up into the Levant and then ultimately yes. into Asia. So you're going, you know, from one continent to the next. Now, when they cross over and they get up to Lebanon where you have the mountainous region and like the Carmel Mountains of Israel and so on, there you have the wild grape that was probably growing at, you know, 100,000 years ago when we first, when the Homo sapiens came out, but even before that, when we had other uh, hominid forms that came out, uh, you know, a million years ago, they would have seen the grape. And then they, they've never seen the grape before. So it's like, it's growing up on trees. That's its natural habitat. It's a yeah. little bit acidic because birds are the ones that are most drawn to it. And they, they, they spread the seed and you know, perpetuate the vine. Uh, but the human then would have seen the grape for the first time and made his first wine from it. Now, we're not sure, you know, where that occurred from the wild grape, but it probably occurred, you know, right away. I mean, they would have just thought, That's well, right. <laughs> let's give it a try. And, uh, you know, we don't have the evidence for that yet, but we're working on it. And so then eventually uh, humans figured out that the wild vine has a male and a female, right? And they're separate. And you have to have them, uh, you know, pollinate uh, either with an insect or the wind from one to the other. But there are like a very small percentage of the vines that are what are called hermaphroditic. They have the male and female on the same flower. And that is easily pollinated because the, the pollen just falls right down into the ovary and you get the the grape developing that way. So some enterprising human uh, would have, have observed either that the male and female were on the same flower, but they're, they're so small it's hard to see, or they would have seen a vine that had a lot more fruit on it and thought, oh, you know, this is something I'd like to perpetuate and clone. 
But the, then the question is, you know, how do they clone it? You know, do they know about horticultural methods? So they, so they sort of go hand in hand. They have to figure out that they've got a bush that produces a lot of grapes or a vine and then figure out they take the root or some cutting or the flower and they transplant that or they take the, the vine itself and layer it back sure. into the soil and then you see it sprouting up again you know, from a different location on another tree, let's say, as a support. And so they would have gradually figured out how to make a domesticated vine and that domesticated vine then would allow you to make lots more wine because you have a lot more fruit. So uh, uh, that's the goal, I think. And uh, uh, this occurred probably around uh, seven to 6,000 BC in the mountainous area, which is the world center of the grape. And up in uh, the Near East, uh, it could be the Zagros Mountains of Iran. Yes. It could be the Caucasus of Georgia, Armenia. It could be the, uh, uh, the, uh, the mountains uh, of eastern Anatolia. It could even be down into Lebanon and, you know, where the grape is growing too, the wild grape. So in any of these areas, you could have had um, somebody make these observations, figure out the horticultural method, and then start growing the, wa the domesticated grape and making wine from the domesticated grape. Now, Professor, give us as well an insight on all the wonderful drinks derived from the fermentation of grapes, where the Egyptian added something to wine, the Greeks something else to wine, and maybe the Romans. So we have, we have if you sequence, would be so kind, yeah. a little bit of a sequence, so people understand the right. influence of other ingredients with wine to help wine being preserved, and maybe to enhance the taste and the flavor of it. Right, well, so, uh you know, our earliest evidence so far for wine, grape wine, uh, is from Georgia in the Caucasus area. And we're not sure if the original domestication occurred there, but it's possible because the wild grape grows there today. And they have, I think, about 600 varietals that have developed just within Georgia. And, you know, Armenia has an equal number. And Azerbaijan, which is right next door, has a whole bunch. Uh, you know, these are, you know, results of development over time as the domesticated grape crosses with the wild grape. So it's a very promiscuous plant. You can get a lot of interchange of DNA. And so what we have to work on is getting samples from these different areas and trying to then to, you know, figure out where that first domestication might have occurred and, you know, when. But once you've got a, a wine culture, now, wine culture is really an important concept here, is that people, once they start making wine in quantity, it gets incorporated into their whole society. So the, the social relations, you know, even having a meal, you know, where you, you have your wine and you do toasting and so forth, or you have a special ceremony uh, for baptism or for uh, even, you know, at, at funerals and so on. I mean, the Jewish religion has a whole series of how much wine you drink you know, at each uh, particular ceremony. Uh, so it gets incorporated into the social religious structure. And then from there, uh, kings, especially rulers like the Egyptians and so on, they give gifts of right. wine, you know, special wines and special wine serving, uh, you know, special vessels made out of, you know, gold, silver, and whatever, uh, to their fellow ruler. 
and that way they you know cement the ties and they have marriage ties and so forth and so on. Uh, but that introduces wine then into a country like Egypt, which yes. is not particularly set up to make uh, grape wine because it's so hot and dry. And the wild grape did not grow there. You had to transplant the domesticated grape to the Nile Delta That's and then right. have ir irrigation and so forth. So that occurs around 3000 BC. But at the same time, they're moving down toward uh, southern Iran, down to the Shiraz region. And so we, what we see is a gradual transfer of the wine culture and the domesticated grape from the north of Mesopotamia down to Egypt and then over to Shiraz. That's and right. then the Canaanites and the Phoenicians, this is my particular interest right now, uh, take the grapevine and the, the wine culture across the Mediterranean. You know, first they go to Crete, and then they go on to Sicily, and then they go, on, right. to, <laughs> they go on to uh, Etruria, the Etruscan area, yes. where we you know, did an article about this. Uh, oh, I would love to see it. Because, yeah. you know, we have a great collection in Burgundy of all Etruscan marvelous containers. Oh, really? Etrusk, yeah. And it's absolutely fascinating to look at the containers and the vehicle in which they would not only transport, but at the same time uh, age or even right. keep, uh, you know, alcoholic fermented beverage. Yeah, well, the amphora, in fact, of the Phoenicians is very similar to the Etruscan amphora. And it's one of the basic arguments for why we think the Phoenicians transferred the wine culture to the Etruscans. Is they That's take it. the same, they take the amphora, the same shape as in Phoenicia, uh, from the Eastern Mediterranean, they duplicate it. And of course, when you duplicate the vessel, you also duplicate what goes inside the vessel, which is the wine. And uh, and so they get a wine, in, they get a local wine industry developing in Etruria. And that wine industry then uh, produces lots of wine that gets sent by ship to southern France and to the site of Lot, uh, which was excavated uh, near Montpellier. And there, uh, the, the, we have the first evidence of making by the Celts of wine about, about 400 BC in France. And so that's the start of the French industry. And, Much uh, later than the others. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, <laughs> professor, if I may suggest as well, as we talking, I don't want your mouth to get too dehydrated, right? We're very concerned of you keep your diction so good as it is. You mentioned Anfora, and maybe we'll go to the more Russian River Chardonnay a little later. We should try a very famous wine because we'd love to hear your idea of one this wonderful wine which obviously is a ribola gialla made in an anfora and dear friends look at this unbelievable unique golden orange color yeah that's very nice so one of the most sought after wine we made in a limited edition at the Lodge Vineyards, our wonderful Brian Maloney winemaker, is very dairy and audacious to go back to time. And I think it's a very opportune moment, Professor, if you would tell us about, you know, the Anfora, as you just alluded to, the containers and, and aging wine or fermenting wine within this and, and why it is still today so appropriate and beneficial. 
Right. Well, unfortunately, my bottle, I only have an empty bottle, <laughs> which uh, is from our past uh, uh, meeting that we had of the Natural Wine Group. And uh, the other bottle that was just sent uh, hasn't arrived yet. Least, All right. Uh, well, it, it's on its way. So I'd like to taste it again, of course, and I will after this. But um, let me say a few words about Amphora Wines. And I mean, this is where Georgia, again, comes into the picture because um, they, uh, they have a tradition there that they claim, you know, goes on for 8,000 years. I mean, we're not sure about that. But uh, at least today, you know, they still make it according to what is called the amphora method. Now, they call their vessels Quevri, Q-V-E-V-R-I, which is just the term for a large vessel in Georgian. And they bury that underground. And so they take their, their grapes, like I think you did with uh, the Ribola here, and uh, they, they squash them up and they, they put them in the, the jar, or the amphora, the quevery, uh, for a very extended period of time on the lees. So you have the whole pumice that's put into the jar, you know, with even stems and seeds and, you know, everything that uh, is with the grapes. And... Uh, uh, I don't know what Marnie's saying. She's uh, indicating something. Uh, she's drinking. Okay. Uh, and then they leave it. Like uh, in Georgia, they leave it over the winter, you know, That's for right. three, or, three or four months. And, and white wines in particular are done this way. Uh, I mean, they do some red wines, you know, in the Quevery method as well. But the white wines then, uh, you open up the, the underground Quevery, which could be as much as 10,000 liters so it's made out, made out of pottery, you know, huge vessels. Yes. And so it's not steel or any other oak or any other material. It's pottery, which has very special properties of exchange of uh, chemical compounds and uh, enzymatic reactions, oxidation reduction, and so forth. So, you know, we still don't really understand all the reactions that are occurring. But something, uh, it, it mellows out the, the wine over time in the quivery. And when they open it up in the spring... Uh, you take the first taste, uh, which I was honored to do out of a, a small goat horn. Uh, you know, they dip down into it, and they bring up uh, the first sample, and you get to taste it. Now, unfortunately, in Georgia, they put beeswax on the inside. Right. <laughs> and, and the first aroma I got was the beeswax, <laughs> which was not so good. So I hope you don't do that. But no. uh, good. And, only, uh, only on the back of the bottle, we put beeswax for the closure and the image of the influence of the bees and the wax, but not inside. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, because beeswax would have been used maybe as a sealant uh, later, of course, and, uh, or pine resin is the other uh, material that's often used. But, uh, but the earliest wine we have from Georgia has no additive to it. It's a, a totally pure grape wine. And, you know, we've looked for other compounds. We've looked for pine resin, the honey, the beeswax compounds, nothing. You know, it's just pure, unadulterated grape wine right from the beginning, you know, which is quite interesting, I think. So, uh, and the Romans, you know, later the Romans, you know, they, their best wines, they would not adulterate. So if you had a Falernian, uh, you know, some special vintage uh uh, you know, from the Naples area, you would not, uh, uh, you know, put anything like seawater 
or you know because this is now another trend that's been happening lately is that the romans put seawater into their wine uh, to sort of give it a kind of a sweetener or maybe help you know in a, a medicinal way or whatever uh, but I don't think that that exact is exactly what you might want to do with a wine. Perhaps <laughs> to counteract the natural acidity of the grapes, salt and acid balance each other out quite nicely. Well, that's a, that, that's what that's what they argue. Yeah, that's the idea. So, mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so Marnie, why don't you tell us, Marnie, as you have it in your glass, the Ribola, because this is so unique, and Professor, we're so excited to obviously be talking about the subject which we love is going back throughout time and we're going to go into Absolutely. your book shortly because every one of you dear friends will be able to buy of course professor's book today signed as well by our dear friends professor mcgovern and really phenomenal books and if you are into the world of wine and you haven't read it it's a must if you want to discover the world of wine it is a phenomenal read and you're going to be so engaged and understand that the culture of wine is so vast so wide and has had appeal in every continent on the planet right professor there's not one place we haven't made wine wherever it goes i mean like we see in the last 40 or 50 years in the new world you know it goes to california it takes over it goes to oregon and washington it goes to australia new zealand you know, it, it's just South Africa. I mean, it really can take over a whole culture. Exactly. So, Marnie, well, maybe the wine? Absolutely. So, so as you see, this is a style of wine that I'll, I'll bring it close to the camera so you can see a little bit better. We call it an orange Ooh. wine because of this unusual amber color. And that comes about because of two different things that we, or two things that we do differently for a wine like this than we would for a normal white wine. In the modern day, we are very careful when we make white wine to separate the juice of the grapes from the skins, from the seeds, from the stems, all of those solids that Dr. Pat was talking about a moment ago are normally separated and only the clear juice, the water white juice of the grape is then fermented. And we do a very good job too. The second thing is that we protect that juice from oxidation because we want to keep it bright and clean and fresh tasting. But thousands of years ago, this was not possible. <laughs> the idea of refrigeration, the idea of protecting the wine from oxygen, none of those things were practical. And even separating the skins from the juice and the uh, removing the, the pips of the grapes and the stems, all of those things were problematic. So this wine, the Ribola Giallo that we have in the glass right now is made according to a, a very ancient method that has its roots in the region of Georgia that Dr. Pat is talking about. But what it does is it takes a green skinned grape, crushes those grapes, and rather than doing the normal modern thing of separating the juice from the solids at that point and only fermenting the juice in the absence of the oxygen, orange wines are made by keeping the solids and the juice together, more like what we do for red wines, and doing so in an oxidative environment where you do get that change of color. This color looks so much like if you sliced an apple and left it on your counter for a day or two, it would develop this golden amber russet color over time. And that's exactly what you see in the glass. It's also what gives us those unusual aromatics that the closest analogy for these in the modern wine world is to compare them to something like Spanish sherry, like a Montiato that have those 
uncommon funky yeasty flavors but also oxidative characteristics that develop over time with exposure to air and that is something that we find in these m4 wines it is it is something that is not necessarily unpleasant i mean it certainly tastes good when you give it a taste you get this kind of um it's almost like adding nuts into a fruit dessert you you get that bitterness that you get by adding walnuts to an apple pie you get that quality that gives you a caramelized characteristic to the fresh fruit and that's exactly what gives this wine its wildly unique characteristics i was just over the moon when brian decided to experiment with the amphora wines we are thrilled to have a few bottles left of the ribola gialla the amphora ribola gialla white the one we call the amphora pardon me the orange wine and I'm looking forward to future experimentation because I, I do think that there's a fascination with wine history, with the origins of wine. And so returning to something, uh, frankly, prehistoric, the idea of taking a an underground vessel, throwing all the grapes in there, crushed, and essentially just putting a, a, a lid on it and walking away for six months to return to a fermented beverage. This is fascinating to me. And, and you're essentially getting a taste of history in the glass. Well, and, and the other point too is that uh, you know this could again be related to the uh, the, the Gouet Blanc uh, grape. You know the DNA research is still ongoing, and you know it's especially prominent in the Venice area and up into Slovenia. And uh, you know a lot of the development with the Gouet Blanc you know occurs in that general area. Uh, and I I don't think there's too much growing. And Grovner, I mean the other thing is that the the, the person that is really one of the pioneers in Italy for amphora wines, Grovner, you know, he uses the same grape. And I'm not sure, I, uh, I think your grape ultimately comes from Grovner, too. Is that right? Uh, yes, I believe John the Charles? source oh, of, the, of the vines, yes. Mm. So, Professor, you are a leading expert, obviously, on two topics as well. One is chemistry and paleontology. So how did you decide to actually merge the two? Yeah, and that's a big question, yeah. Uh, well, uh, I always, you know, I was always sort of one foot in humanities, one foot in sciences. And I went, you know, I grew up in Ithaca, New York, where Cornell is located. And I had a lot of friends who were obviously very academically oriented. You know, they had professor fathers and mothers. And, uh, you know, I, I got very interested in, in lots of things. You know, it was just uh, uh, something that you want to learn. And uh, I went to Cornell and I majored in chemistry, but I minored in English literature. And uh, uh, Two sides of the brain. Yeah, and I always liked languages a lot. For instance, when I was in high school, I had a girlfriend who had been, uh, uh, what was it, an A, you know, American Field Service, AFS uh, student in France. And I really loved some of the songs in French that she sang, like La Verte de Campagne, uh, Je Suis Né, and so on. And, uh, and so I, I decided I wanted to take French. So I, I spent, I, I said, well, you know, I took the, the book, the first day at class, the French one, and I went home and I read the whole book. <laughs> and then I said, "Well, I really would like to, you know, learn a little, a little bit more." So I, I jumped into French. Tell us three. the truth, though, Professor. You were trying to seduce her as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
which yeah. I'm sure you succeeded. Uh, yeah, and German, German I liked a lot too. And you know, my earliest experiences in winemaking, or you know, sort of winemaking, was in Germany, in the Mosel region, picking grapes, Riesling, uh, on the Mosel. And so I always liked German a great deal, and you know I like Riesling a great deal too because of its aromatic properties, obviously. And um, uh, you know these, you know we, we we pick grapes on the Mosel for about six weeks, and you know on the very steep slopes of slate. And you know the first night, you know I came from upstate New York, where we had all these uh, things like Concord grape. Uh, you know, that were not pure <laughs> Venus vinifera by any means. You know, they were uh, uh, Lambrusca and so forth. Uh, and when we got to the Mosul region uh, and picking the grapes, the first night, the vintner, a very small uh, winemaker in a small town there, he took us into his wine cellar and he said, okay, now, here, I'm going to pour you some wine. But he wouldn't show us the, na- the year. And we were very unfamiliar with the whole idea of vintage. And so he poured it, and uh, then we were supposed to tell him the year. Well, you know, at first we had no idea in the world, you know, what year it was. Uh, but by the time we had drunk like nine or ten bottles, <laughs> and, and we're, we're feeling very good, uh, we, we, could, we knew, you know, we knew that 1959 was this you know, spectacular year, and, you know, 1969 was terrible, and so on. Uh, and we were picking in 1971. 1971 turned out to be the Riesling vintage of the century. We had sun, sunshine every day. You know, you go up above the clouds on the hillsides, and the sun would be up there, and then it would just, you know, the fog would just, you know, dissipate. And it was just such a wonderful uh, adventure. And, and I think that's really what got me into the whole question of wine. And, you know, when people started saying, you know, who, we think we have a sample, an archaeological sample that could have had wine in it, I got very interested, and I had a, a colleague from the, the Faults area whose uh, family were wine merchants, and uh, so he was very interested, and so we worked together on that. Fascinating. <laughs> and Professor, so it's time for you to show us the cover of this beautiful book you've written, because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the essence of your book is obviously the role of fermentation and the role it plays within the world of, of all this beverage. You touched on it before, but would you tell us a few of the key episodes maybe in your book that we must read and we must oh, okay. retain? Yeah. So, you know, uh, I mean, this is the latest edition. And, and uh, wines. Yeah. And there is... This is only in, in paperback, but there is the earlier. Whoops, gotta go this way, I guess. There is the. Is that okay? Yes. Uh, yeah. This was yes. this was the first the first edition, which is in hardback, and but I don't have any copies. I don't think. Uh, but uh, you know, I had, bought a copy on just not to advertise them, but on on bookstores online. So, dear friends, if you prefer the obviously hard copy, I have a few. And uh, this is how you get it. But otherwise, we'll have the soft paperback so you could put it in your suitcase and travel the world with it. Right. And, uh, I mean, the thing with, uh, with wine is it really does represent this combination of the humanities and science. 
So I try to, you know, make the science not too difficult, you know, for the chemically challenged in these books. I mean, if you want to read my articles, you can, uh, you know, go on my website, and there's PDFs that you can download. But, um, and, you know, we've published in all the leading journals, you know, the, the scientific findings. And so what I try to do here is give you an overview of the archaeology, history, all the different kinds of scientific approaches that one might use, uh, chemistry being one of them, but, you know, botany, uh, ancient climate, uh, you know, it goes on and on because wine is like so integral to so many societies. It's so important. Um, and it has so, and the grapevine itself is such a, a wonderful plant, you know, the way it develops and how you can have eight or 10,000 different varietals with all different flavors and aromas. So I think uh, it, it really lends itself to this sort of uh, interdisciplinary approach uh, to, to a great degree. So if there's something that is the most striking, the most compelling, the most unique in the book that everyone should remember from Dr. Pat McGovern, what well, is it? The most compelling? Uh, that's, a good, that's a good question. Because, I mean, there's so many different high points, you know, in the history of wine. That's kind of well, hard. the few most compelling. Yeah. So name right. a few. <laughs> well, I think the domestication, you know, the, the NOAA hypothesis that, that we're still working on. Uh, you know, where was the original wild grape domesticated? Exactly when? You know, where did it all sort of get started? And uh, that's something that uh, we're still working on with the DNA uh, side and the chemical side and doing more samples from Georgia and so forth. Um, the Paleolithic, you know, I, I really think that we'd like to know a lot more about the Paleolithic. You know, it's millions of years. And I talk about this, um, is that, you know, it's sort of like the holy grail of yes. wine. Uh, you know, if we could just, you know, figure out what was happening with wine in the mountainous areas in the Paleolithic period, I think that would be fascinating. And, you know, I, so I, I, some of this is actual findings. Some of this is, you know, wishing we would get more information. Uh, I think the Egyptian, uh, you know, winemaking, you know, how the Canaanites came to Egypt, transplanted the grapevine, set up all the trellis vines. I mean, they already show fantastic uh, training uh, of the vines and protecting it from the sun you know, and irrigation. I mean, already, you know, in around 3000 BC, we have beautiful right. illust illustrations of this. And, you know, how do you, how do you go about, uh, you know, stomping out the grapes? You know, it, I, I'm sort of a believer, <laughs> maybe because I went to port uh, area, you know, to Duro, and uh, I've, I actually got in the uh, the lagar, you know, and tromp the grapes. And, you know, I think it's, it's a fa fascinating method which was used all through antiquity, which, you know, the human, the human foot, you know, doesn't break the seeds. So you actually, you know, get a better uh, tannin quality to your wine, perhaps, by doing the, the stomping. And I was wondering, like in Burgundy, I remember we were there and they were, of course, they were punching down. Yes. Uh, but do they leave uh, many of the seeds, or do well, they, is that all? So, you know, as you touch on this topic, I, I feel what is as well very important, and you say it so well in your book too, is that human connection, the sense of touch and deep magnetic connection between the human body and the energy we generate to the touch of that 
evolutionary fruit and that fermentation and that deep connection of the two one communicates frequency to the other and one plus one equals seven or eight <laughs> ten right yeah i think and so I think it, as you say it's very important to say that we don't break the pit so we don't bring that natural astringency to to the wine but on the opposite we let it gently ferment and 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 that becomes what it does become. But tell us as well, as I just poured the next wine, which is that magnificent OFS from the Loach, right. which is obviously, you know, a Vitis Vinifera, and you're the expert as well on the topic. So why don't you give us, Professor, the definition for all our friends who maybe are not in the wine world and have decided to listen to us today to know what vitis vinifera mean and the role of it within the ancient wine and the history of wine and what it is today. Right. Well, I mean, there are many species of grape all around the world. Uh, China has maybe 20, 30, 40 species. We're not even sure, you know, exactly the number. And we know that they, uh, some of them are quite sweet. And they were used, you know, probably to make a fermented beverage even earlier than in the Middle East. Uh, because we did a site in the Yellow River Valley, uh, Jiahu, that um, had a mixed beverage of grapes or hawthorn fruit or, and then also mead from honey and yep. beer from rice. So it was like a combination mixed or extreme beverage, fermented beverage. Um, but those, uh, but China never really domesticated any of their grape species. They may have used wild grapes, and they still do today. I mean, I've, I've been to China uh, up into the Los area um, in the same region where some of the, you know, the best wines are produced today. And, they, and the local people, they go out and collect the wild grapes, and yes. they, um, they make wine from it. So this could, this could have been going on a long time. But they never domesticated any of those species. And the same is true of North America. I mean, we're... Vin, Vinland, Vineland, you know, according to the Vikings. Uh, yes. And we, we have also, you know, 30 different species, let's say, of Vetus. And yet none of those, as far as we know, were domesticated. And the only one that we know for sure was domesticated was Vetus vinifera. You know, v, you know, Vetus vine of the wine. And it's the Eurasian grapevine. It's a single single species but it produces 99.9% of the world's wine. That's it. And, and principally from French cultivars, you know, 20 or 30 of them that have spread out over the whole world, although there's many other varietals, 8 to 10,000. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's, it's gone and undergone this marvelous transformation, I think especially as it moved across the Mediterranean. Um, you know, if you look at Turkey, how many varietals are in Turkey, how many in Greece, how many in Italy, how many in France, um, Spain? Uh, you know, this uh, shows that the the cultivated, the domesticated vine, you know, went from place to place, and it crossed with the wild vine growing in the same place, and produced many more varietals. And uh, it's just an amazing plant. I mean, it's. I mean, how, what what plant ever did that? I mean, can you give another <laughs> example? <laughs> exactly. So well, on that note. 
Oh, I, I was just going to break in, Jean-Charles, and just say that, you know, even the name of uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet Sauvignon, references this idea of a wild grape, sauvage in French, the, the wild vine interacting with the cultivated vine, which I just think is absolutely fascinating. But I, I the one thing I have to emphasize, and this is, my, my father was a geography professor, so I'm very intensely aware of where things <laughs> are in the world, but right. I find it absolutely fascinating that pure grape wines, as your research has revealed, first emerged from the Caucasus region of all places, which is that strange intersection of Eastern Europe and Western Asia. We call them two different continents, but of course mm -hmm. it's all one land mass right. and culturally so incredibly important. If you look at this zone in the Caucasus, you're talking about the, the modern day borders of, of Georgia to the north of Iran to one side to Turkey as well. And all of it so close so physically close to the foot of Mount Ararat. I love that you right. gave that name, the, the Noah hypothesis, to the idea right. for the emergence of the Vitis vinifera vine. And anyone curious about this should absolutely explore your book, Ancient Wines. It is a, a fascinating story, but one I think that we will still see more episodes of, because I don't think you're finished with your research, Dr. Pat. I think there's more revelations left to come. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's for sure. That, I mean, that's what makes it interesting. I mean, if we, if we found out everything, you know, we could just close up shop, go home, <laughs> and drink our wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we never, we keep searching and we keep, what is great, is discovering. Mm. And that's the beauty of it. We keep discovering. So, Professor, give us your, your honest opinion of this amazing wine. Talking about Vitis Vinifera. This is the king and queen of the white wine. Right. Obviously, it has the Fleur de Lys on it, which is the OFS, the finest selection of the Loach. Mm -hmm. And this is um, probably one of my favorite white wine Chardonnay coming out of the Deloach estate, made again by Brian Maloney and right. Kim Carter. This is, you know, I believe, whole cluster pressed to its best and it's to its mm -hmm. finest. Mm -hmm. so What's it has your opinion of the wine before I ask you a very important question, a deep question? Yes, please. What's the deep <laughs> question? <laughs> oh, right. Another one. Okay. First, uh, tell us about the wine. <laughs> tell us about the wine first. I thought we were first going to do the, the difficult question here. Well, but, the uh, difficult uh, question is, is really, it could be intertwined with your answer of the wine is, okay. You know, a lot of people with us today are looking for inspiration and you are really a true one. When I saw you at the convention we organized with all our ambassadors and you talked about the history of wine and ancient times, which is one of my favorite topics, obviously, history. I was so engaged with your talk and after an hour and a half, I was thirsty for more. So <laughs> you keep having that thirst yeah. of you know, researching and finding more, where does that come from and and why do you do this? Well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, but let me first say about this wine. I mean, I think it's... You, know, <laughs> <laughs> you see, you thought it was going to be an easy one. I read your mind. This will, this will, inspire, this will inspire me. Uh, it... Uh, you know, it's a it's a very well balanced uh, Chardonnay, and I guess you did a very gentle batonnage 
so uh, it you know the tannins and everything are you know nice and I it, you know it's nice uh, fruit uh, I, a little bit of oak but not overdone so uh, I think it's it's a wonderful beautiful wine again and uh, I don't know how, I don't know how you come up with all these wines I mean I, I have a whole group here that Marnie sent me which uh, <laughs> you, you know from France and the Vougeot and uh, you know why uh, professor Kai because there's another book you wrote that you need to come back and talk more about is Uncorking the Past. Oh, yes. And I really believe, like you, we have so much in common is to really engage constantly into the search of history, help us understand where we come from and who we are to better eventually right. craft the future. Right, right. That's, that's, that's what it's what, all about. Because yeah, so I mean, that's why uh, I'm curious. So tell us about your research, what goes through those continuous excavation. And I'm holding my head because yeah. you excavate, you <laughs> analyze, and then you write. Well, that's, you know, the writing part of it actually is a lot, a lot of the creative aspect of it. Because, uh, you know, as you write, you know, this book, for instance, you know, which was given, by the way, this got the Grand Prix d'Histoire Beaux-Arts from the OIV, you know, the Organisation Internationale de Vent. Yeah, of and, course. you know, in 2004 in Paris. And so that's, you know, quite amazing that, uh, you know, they recognized it. Uh, as, you, as you write this um, book, you know, I, I would find that I was getting more questions, you know, every day. You know, I would wake up, especially at, at night, I... I tend to dream and I would wake up in the morning, you know, you're trying to, in, the, in your dreams, you're trying to solve different problems, right? You're trying to work out how things are organized. I mean, sometimes they're terrible, you know, nightmarish type dreams, I guess, but other times they seem to be very integrative and, and, and putting things together. And I would wake up in the morning and I would have a whole new set of ideas and it would like encourage me then to do more research and, you know, and look into different things. Um, and, you know, even today, you know, as I was looking back over our materials from the natural wines, you know, different thoughts came to me uh, that you, you sort of wonder about. And, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're constantly going through that process, I think, in your research and your writing. Um, and it's, so, it's, it's, so, Professor, out of all that research, all the wines that you uncork from the past as your title specifies it what wine has not yet been done that we ought to do well uh you know the thing i've always you know been pushing for in california especially because when i we first reported that there was many ancient wines with a tree resin in them which ants, acts as an antioxidant you know protects the the grape from going to vinegar uh the wine from going to vinegar uh you know, I got uh, sort of a pushback from the California winemakers saying, oh, they thought I was sort of diminishing the value of tree resin, believe it or not. I mean, they were you know, saying that. So uh, I said, well, if you're so interested in using tree resins, why don't you try doing it yourself? And I never got, I got one person, Sean Thackeray, who is a very experimental winemaker. You may know him. And now recently, uh, Stephen Matisson. Do you know, do you know him? in yes. Napa, who's also, you know, he also works with Rebola uh, grapes as well. 
and has you know some very fine wines uh, that he produces. Well, he's doing a Retsina. And you know you might consider uh, you know something similar, uh, you know, but not necessarily you know what he's doing exactly. But uh, you know, there's We're taking notes. Yeah, I mean, so, you could take you could take frankincense and myrrh, for instance. That's you right. Know, and that's what the Romans did. The the finest yes. Roman well, wine. Well, myrrh is already working in the realm of fragrance, and resins are a, a significant contributor to the flavor dimensions that you find in perfume so so i i'm sure that we have some great resources for this idea thank you for the concept <laughs> yeah we will i'm taking notes the magical jcb pen is yeah, going. right <laughs> so professor we're gonna have to bring you for another show and marnie and i were were just discussing it on beer as well but maybe oh, really? you huh. you give us a taste of your fascination for beer because beer and wine go hands in hands. And when we look at fermentation, dear friends, the University of Louvain in Belgium is one of the leading experts on fermentation science. Right, and we right. learn a lot mm -hmm. from our beer friends. So maybe, Professor, do you want to touch on that? Because you are sure. an uh, expert on beer as well, equally as wine. Well, I, I think beer, you know, I, I used to, I started out in wine. I mean, you know, like I told you about the Mosul uh, Riesling grape picking adventures. Uh, but, you know, I, obviously if you're in Germany, uh, you know, and I went there when I was 16 years old. And at first, you know, I was drinking only Coca-Cola. And then I found out beer was uh, less expensive and uh, tasted a lot better. So I, we started drinking like a liter you know, before we got the meal and then a liter with the meal. So, you, you know, you would feel very good. Um, you would have trouble driving your bike afterwards. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, I had some good experiences in, in beer. But I always, you know, gravitated toward wine as being more aromatic or interesting. You know, and I, I still, you know, generally feel that. That it has, you know, greater uh, possibilities. Um, you know, more compounds perhaps. But, but then... But then is we found that there was a lot of different added ingredients that went into these different fermented beverages. You, you know, you can take a base of a beer, and in fact, you can just start out with a beer that has all kinds of microorganisms associated with it and produce very aromatic, you know, like uh, Lambic, Lambic beer. So when I first went to uh, what's called the Monk's Tavern, uh, Marnie will know this, in Philadelphia, and Tom Peters, who was the owner, he got out a bottle of Chimay from Belgium. Yes. And it was three years. One of my favorite, of course. Really? Okay. It was aged, you know, for three years. And he gave me, you know, a taste of it. And I said, wow, that's really beautiful. And that doesn't really have any additives except the yeast and, and the, the fermentation process that is uh, produced it. So it, um, you know, that sort of turned me on to, you know, the whole idea of beer. Well, and I have to add a little context, if you don't mind, Dr. McGovern, because, of course, we think of the Trappist monasteries in Belgium, like Chimay, producing these amazing beers. But what many people don't realize is that the kingdom of Burgundy ruled that region of Belgium for so many years. They, they became accustomed to the complexity of great Burgundy, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, like what we have in the glass. And so they began after the severing of those ties thirsting for the complexity they used to have in the amazing wines of burgundy 
and figured out a way to acquire it in the beer by adding sugar to boost their texture, to give more complexity from the results of fermentation, the chemical reactions that take place after the yeasts of converted sugar to alcohol. It's just mind blowing once you realize the connection between Burgundy wines and Trappist Belgian beers. I didn't, re I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's a good point. Wow. So, Professor, we, would you accept to come back on the show at some stage and we, we focus more? I think so. More? I think I've enjoyed this very much. So I would definitely uh, take you up on that invitation. Many well, times. and I know all our guests are as well and everybody's going to replay it and everybody's going to get the book. So, dear friends, don't forget we have an amazing offer uh, because we want everybody to read Ancient Wines. And it's a book in any case you need to have in your shelf as a reference point because Professor is amazing and the research is extensive. So I have two more questions for you, Professor. Very important questions. One, besides obviously keeping being a good husband to your beautiful wife, what is your dream? My dream? <laughs> uh, to have more of your fine wines, I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, that's part of it. And, uh, uh, you know, just making more discoveries, you know, that, that would be my main goal. I mean, that's, that's where you get the excitement. I mean, if, if I start, stop making discoveries, I mean, you know, I, I'm technically retired right now, right? But I still have an office and a laboratory. And I can't imagine myself doing anything else than what I've been doing all my life. I mean, it's, that's what I do. You know, it's like you making, making fine wines. I mean, can you imagine, you know, retiring and just not doing it anymore? <laughs> or, or Marty. I don't even know how it would look like. But yeah. I, I'm so glad because you inspire all of us with your audacity, your sense of curiosity and pushing your mind constantly to new territories that are the unknown. And I think, Professor, mm -hmm. as I first met you, this is what I adored in your personality, your style, and, and the fabric of who you are. Now, on that note, you know, we've obviously lived quite differently in the last 14 months. And not to say that it's bad, not to say that it's great. I'm not making any judgment. I think there's good things in any evolution of time. What is your message to all our friends who are coming from all over the world? Because people watch our right. show from Africa right. to Southeast Asia, to the Middle East, to Europe, to the US. So what would be your message as a closing statement now in April of 2021? Well, you know, it has been a very difficult year. I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, I, I, I used to travel a great deal. And I mean, I just have been, you know, basically <laughs> staying in this one place and, you know, taking the train into Philadelphia every now and then. And, and our university is still closed until July. But I think, you know, like anything, you know, there have been many plagues, there have been many diseases. I mean, Europe experienced uh, tremendous numbers of them. And, uh, you know, the Black Death of what, late 1300s. And, and just on and on and on. And, and Philadelphia even, you know, we had epidemics of all kinds. So, you know, but you come out of it and, and, and there's still a world out there. And I think, you know, there's still so much more to find out. And I just am um, 
always encouraged that you know life goes on in fact i'm, I'm surprised it goes on <laughs> as much as it does you know you sort of feel like maybe the world's coming to an end but yet it it always transforms itself it always moves into a different phase and i mean we live in this marvelous universe you know of hundred millions billions of galaxies and uh you know we just are immersed in a a world a biological world here on this planet but also a um a universe in which the possibilities, I think, really are infinite. And, um, and I think you always have to keep that in mind, that there is a, a meaning, a basic uh, plan to this whole thing that we may not understand, but it is really uh, fascinating, and we need to find out as much as we can about it. So I, I have great hope, to tell you the truth. I'm not giving well, up yet. Thank you. <laughs> well, Professor, thank you. Absolutely, Marnie. And I want to really thank Cheers. Marnie for introducing okay. us. And, and really, Marnie always knows how to make new friends and build friendship and great bridges of culture. So, Professor, really, from the bottom of our heart, from the wine world at large, and I'll speak on the behalf of everyone, you know, your two books, Ancient Wine and Cork the Past, are amazing. And I know you have many others, but th th those are the twos that we love in the world of wine. I encourage everybody to to really dive into culture. Wine is culture. It's not just about the enjoyment of the liquid itself and the pairing with food. It's all that comes with it that Professor McGovern tells us so well in his beautiful writing and in-depth research. So, Professor, thank you for making our world always, one, a better place, and two, a well-documented place. And I agree <laughs> completely with you, and I think you've made such fantastic wines. And the wine really is always will make things better. It will. <laughs> Thank you. So, Professor, it, it we need to have a date. And you have witnessed all around the globe now that you're going to be back. And we're going to pick a topic in the past that you want to dive into. That would be an amazing world lecture on on a topic of wine and another day a topic on beer because I don't right, want that's a good idea. to just think right. that you do wine only because beer is really one of your key interests. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, let's uh, look forward to that. Us I too. <laughs> Professor, Cheers. send our best to your beautiful wife. I know she's upstairs waiting for your affection. Probably going to tell me I was speaking too loudly, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you did amazing. And Marty, thank uh, you so much. So, dear friends, remember there's an amazing offer to acquire the book of Professor McGovern and obviously some great wines. So try to bring some readings into your wine glass. And remember, this wine glass is all about culture and history. So dive into more. Thank you, Professor. Cheers. Sante. Santé. That was outstanding. Ooh la la. So, Professor, don't. I